Hello, I'm Hans Lee, and welcome to this special interview brought to you by Livewire Markets. Today, I am sitting down with Stefan Gerlach, Chief Economist at EFG Bank. Before his current role, he served as Deputy Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland and was present at the ECB's Governing Council when Mario Draghi was its president. Today, Gerlach is part of an organization overseeing some $215 billion in funds under management. And just for you, he's joined us from his offices in Zurich in Switzerland for a conversation around central banking and investment strategy. Stefan, thanks for joining us. It's great to see you. It's great to be here. I hate to start blunt, but we have to. Um, Central bankers have completely missed the inflation surge across the world. And even here in Australia, anecdotally, we saw last week a small beat on inflation at both headline and core levels, but that was enough to rattle the market. You're someone who's been through the, the machinations and the pressure of, uh, of sitting in those central banking decision-making rooms. Why do you think central bankers were caught so off guard? Well, first, I think it's important to remember that everybody was caught off guard. If you look at forecasts from private sector forecasters, from the IMF, from the OECD and so on, everybody, I think, was surprised uh, about this. And I think there are two important factors here. The first was that we've had two completely unforecastable shocks. The first is, of course, COVID. And the second uh, is the Russian invasion of Ukraine that happened uh, 11 months ago. And of course, had, uh, had these events not happened, the outlook for inflation would have been very, very different. So I think it's, it's partially due to these very, very big surprises. Now, uh, if you think of, 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 uh, of COVID, um, um, normally we tend to think of inflation rising either because demand in the economy is very high, we have the demand boom, or because we have a supply contraction uh, or an oil price shock. The problem with COVID and unprecedented economic events, at least in the last hundred years, was it combined all of these elements. It had demand effects, for instance, when COVID first started, People stopped going to restaurants and they stopped traveling and so on and so forth. It had, uh, and it has supply shifting elements uh, as people, instead of going, for instance, out, instead of traveling for tourism in Europe, instead of going to Southern Europe uh, on vacation, they bought new garden furniture. So you had a shift in spending from the service sector to the goods sector and back. And of course, then they had a reopening of the economies and so on. So this was a mess. And I don't think really anyone had a fair chance of forecasting how this would uh, how this would develop, and of course, plenty of government stimulus uh, helped to uh, as well to boost inflation. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the IMF, and I'm glad you mentioned about the forecasting because it does lead to a question that I want to ask, and I know some of our readers and viewers have been asking. I, I and I mean, I, I point to a chart from the IMF, which will put up for the readers and the uh, and the viewers for the li- for the audience on podcasts. Um, the, the chart's really just about how much in food and energy prices were a part of the inflation story. Now, of course, we're seeing how these headline effects from six to 12 months ago will now affect the services economy and maybe from there how companies will choose to invest. So I guess pretending a little bit to what you were saying earlier and you know what we, what we saw there from the IMF and all these other economic organizations around the world, do you think central bankers could have better forecasted what was coming? full well knowing all the stimulus that they had to pump into economies mm. worldwide. So again, I mean, it would have been impossible to forecast the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for instance, but now most, uh, most recently. Perhaps uh, um, they underestimated the, uh, the impact of, gam- of government st- uh, stimulus on the economy. 
as you know, monetary policy impacts on inflation with long lags because monetary policy induces the private sector to spend. But of course, government spending impacts on spending immediately and therefore on prices immediately. And we see that particularly in the US where the massive fiscal expansion has really triggered very strong demand-oriented uh, inflation. And perhaps they were too slow to take that into account. It did put the Fed in a very tricky situation, however, because you could imagine we, we have... Uh, we have a massive fiscal expansion in the U.S. And if the Fed then immediately says, oh, oh this will be inflationary, we're going to offset it with tighter monetary policy. That is a message that would have been very, very hard to send. So now we've uh, just been talking about how uh, central banks were maybe a little bit behind the curve, but again, how they couldn't have forecasted all of this. Do you think then that they reacted quickly and forcefully enough to avoid a global recession? I think initially they were slow to react. And you have to remember the environment they came out of. We've had many years in many countries across the world of inflation running a little bit too low. Uh, and I think there was a sense that this isn't so bad. Initially, the forecast pointed to some moderate pickup in inflation. And, you know, run inflation below target for a number of years. What's wrong with running inflation a percentage point above target? I mean, this was, I think, quite reasonable. Uh, and uh, the Fed adopted average inflation targeting, as you remember, in, in 2021. Uh, the idea there was that if you run below target for a couple of years, you can run above target a little bit for a couple of years. So I think initially they weren't, they were a bit complacent, perhaps. And then, but, but when they finally did realize that inflation was really surging, they responded extremely forcefully. I think a good rule of thumb when you talk about Fed tightening cycles, and this holds true if you look through the data for the last 40 years, except the 2015 episode that was a bit different. But essentially, we're talking about the Fed tightening interest rate by something like 300 basis points over 15 months, or 20 basis points on average a month. Now, last year, the Fed jacked up interest rates by, I think, 425 basis points in the time span of nine months. Now, this is a massive uh, monetary policy tightening. The ECB raised interest rate by something like, like 250 basis points in six months. Again, this is a massive monetary policy tightening. And I feel, uh, you know, monetary policy impact on real economic activity with a long lag, long and variable lags, as the Nobel Prize winner Milton Friedman put it. Normally, we think of tightening in monetary policy has a peak impact on economic activity after something like 12 months. So this tightening, this massive tightening, will be felt really in the second half of this year, I think. And I think there's a good chance that uh, future monetary historians will say, well, the central banks across the world, they were slow to react for perhaps good reasons, but they then tightened far too much, far too rapidly. I think I'm a little worried about this. All right, well, we'll, we'll come back to that and we can kind of probe your reasons a little more about the, the over-tightening. Um, but as we mentioned in that introduction, and it was, we mentioned a little bit already, you spent four years at the Irish Central Bank, you know, second in command. If you were still at your old role, how do you think you would have handled the inflation surge of 2021 and 2022 differently? I think I would probably have missed it like most people. I mean, there, if you look at this again, as I said in the beginning, if you look at forecasts for most people, most people underestimated the surge in inflation. And I don't think there is sort of uh, anything. Uh, I mean, yeah, I didn't. I also thought that inflation would pick up moderately. Uh, and I don't think there's anything that that would sort of change this 
this view. I'm glad you were talking a little bit earlier about the the over tightening situation, and I and I explored that a little bit more. What is the likelihood? Do you think that central banks have got it wrong again, and this time will over hike? I think that risk is quite material. In in fact, it's probably more so in some countries than in others. For instance, I am worried about what the ECB has been doing. Uh, and uh, I, I can see they may, they may be, um, they may be triggering a recession. I mean, Q4 data for Germany that just came in was not that was not that good. Madame Lagarde has been talking about raising interest rates several times uh, in spring by 50 basis points a pop. And you know, if you <laughs> if you raise rates by another 150 basis points in the time span of a couple of months on top of having done 250 basis points last year. These are almost unprecedented, or in the case of your area, for sure, unprecedented increases in, in policy rates. And, you know, this could, this could end badly. This could very well end badly. But would you agree that most of the major central banks around the world, developed market central banks I'm specifically referring to, do you think most of them will still have some way to go in, in their hiking journey, even if yeah. there are others who say, well, maybe we're near the end? What, what, what can't be you in on that? Yes, I think, uh, I think most central banks will sort of calibrate policy a little bit better. I mean, it became clear last year that with interest rates at zero and inflation surging up towards 10%, it was clear that zero was not the reasonable level of monetary policy rate. So you can then, the first increases could be quite rapid. But as you approach a more sort of uh, plausible level, if you like, central banks don't know what the correct level of interest rate is at any point in time, so, but a level that they sort of thought might be sensible, well, then you have to slow down uh, and then sort of gently uh, uh, sort of reach the, the right level. It's sort of like if you have a motorboat in the lake and as you go towards the shore first you may go full speed but as you get cl closer to the dock you will slow down and start maneuvering etc and i think central banks will do the same thing with monetary policy so i do suspect that across the world we will see some more increases i mean the fed for this week i think will increase by 25 basis points uh, something like that and perhaps do another increase but uh, i think you know they are approaching sort of the uh, the uh, the appropriate level now so, it, so there will be increases but they will be more gradual from now on i think do you think most developed market central banks will be done hiking by mid-year? Or do you think yes, we'll have to wait until the end of the year for that? As a rule of thumb, there will be exceptions, of course. But as a rule of thumb, I suspect that will be true. All right, I see. There you go. There, uh, there uh, prediction just for you there, viewers and readers and listeners. Um, I, I want to shift, if I can, a little bit to a question that I know I get a lot when I write about economics. And I know it's something that people would love an answer to, and that's messaging. Um, central banks are often criticized as being vague or hard to understand, even by seasoned investors. Again, you are someone who's been through this. You've been involved in the writing of monetary policy statements and press <laughs> conferences and whatnot. Are there any tips you could perhaps provide our investors on how to interpret central bank messaging and statements? I think it's very, very important to put yourself in their situation. Now, in financial markets, uh, uh, when you comment on financial markets, people tend to give very, very blunt, very clear forecasts. We talk about resistance levels. We talk about, you know, a level of 4% on interest rates or the stock market hitting this and so on and so forth. And if that turns out to be wrong, then we just very quickly admit, well, I was wrong about that. And then your life goes on. And if you're not too wrong too frequently, you're fine. 
Now, central banks are very different. They come from a very different situation. First of all, first they comment on macroeconomic data. Now, financial markets data, you can just read off the screen. They're never revised. They're there. They're never revised. Macroeconomic data, of course, comes with a lag. There are many different macroeconomic time series, depending upon, you know, if you give me, if you, if you tell me that CPI inflation was this, and therefore I think inflation is going to be, uh, be rising, I could say, well, purchasing power, as, uh, so excuse me, um, uh, 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 PPI prices are actually doing that, or some other time series is doing this. As data is always uh, conflicting and contradictory. Macroeconomic data are always revised. And central banks do know that. The data is not as clear as commentators think. What they try to do is they try to build up a mosaic of the economy. And any individual data piece may not fit that mosaic, but they look at sort of what does the overall picture look like in a way which I think market commentators don't, don't recognize. Market commentators often, often think the central banks react to a single data point, a CPI release, something like that. They don't. They look at the, at the big picture um, and they look at many time series. So you need to have that, that difference sort of in perspective uh, when you think about what central banks are saying. Secondly, for central banks, it's really, they're really uncomfortable if they, if they make a mistake. Like, for instance, if they raise interest rates and then start cutting interest rates very quickly, as some, some commentators now think some central banks will do. Well, central banks would worry that if they were to do that, they would be immediately harassed by, by journalists saying, you made a mistake, admit it, you were wrong. Why don't you tell me you're wrong? Uh, so they, you know, they're much more cautious about this. And one, one needs to have that difference in perspective uh, in, in mind. They aren't market commentators, they are central banks. They will be much slower to react because they need a more complete picture of the data. And they're going to be very hesitant to change direction very rapidly. So they're going to be sort of lagging behind a little bit, uh, if you like. And that's indeed exactly what market commentators say. Central banks are always behind the curve. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's easy to see uh, that the difference in perspective will, will, will sort of foster that interpretation. Do you think that won't change, even that, that approach, I suppose, of being behind the curve because they want to wait for all the data, they want the picture. Do you think that won't, uh, that approach won't change even after the experience of what we've all been through in the last couple of years? You know, sometimes it does, uh, you know, this is not always true. When you have discrete uh, changes in the economy that, that everyone can see, then they, are very quick to, then they are very quick to react. For instance, when Lehman Brothers went belly up on 15th September 2008, central banks cut interest rates massively by hundreds of basis points in the next six weeks. Uh, but that is a, a sort of in a very unusual situation. Most economic uh, developments, you know, it's not obviously what they will, what consequences they will have. If monetary policy should tighten a lot or a little, or if they should do nothing or even cut rates, so they will sort of wait a little bit. If it's clear what they should do, then they will react quickly. But most of the time, it's surprisingly unclear, partially because the data is un unclear and different data series send contradictory messages. So, you know, they, they, they try to do as well as possible, but it's just hard with, uh, with macroeconomic uh, data. I mean, take the current situation, even among markets economists, there is broad disagreements about things. Will we slip into a recession, for instance, in Europe or in the US or not? Uh, it's just very hard to know.
I'm glad that you mentioned the European recession. And uh, that's because, of course, you are joining us for this interview from the heart of Europe, Switzerland, right there in the middle of the, uh, of the continent. And for a while, the ECB was very behind the curve. I think that's, that's, that's fair to say. But now that there's chatter that the continent may actually avoid a recession. And I, I think of the Goldman Sachs call that was recently put out that's that nice. even as early as the first quarter of this year, it'll be small economic growth. And we'll put that chart up uh, for our viewers and for our readers and for the podcast uh, listeners. What we're basically just illustrating here is that Q1, it'll be small. It might be 0.1, 0.2%. But nonetheless, that means that they avoid the technical definition of a recession. But I wonder, Stefan, what camp you're in. Uh, do, do you think that the ECB did get lucky this time, given the warm winter you guys had and the timing of the Chinese reopening? Unfortunately, I think it's sort of it's too early to to say this. As I mentioned earlier, the impact of monetary, uh, monetary policy on economic activity is felt with a long lag. I think we will not know the answer until until the end of 2023. I'm afraid. Uh, because in fall, I fear that the the impact of monetary policy will be felt more strongly, and it's easy to see why. You know, when interest rates go up, and when mortgage interest rates go up, and so on, initially people sort of adjust, so they think, but they can probably ride out the storm. Uh, but then, if as interest rates continues to increase, they get more and more squeezed, and at some stage, you know, things start to break. They start to cut back consumption very rapidly, uh, or they. In some countries, they may default on a mortgage and so on and so forth. So the, the impact is just felt with a, with a long lag. Now, initially, I think what we've seen is that we have a, a bit of tightening sort of coming from monetary policy. We can see that, for instance, in, in bank lending statistics in the euro area. But it's not enough to, so to outweigh some other positive developments, such as the expected and now realized opening in China and a few other uh, energy prices falling back and so on. So in the beginning, it looks pretty good. But I think it's sort of it's uh, it's it's too early. It's too early to say how this would play itself out. Uh, we were talking about there about not just the the reasons for, for, for Goldman and that the euro area will avoid a recession, one of them being about the warm winter and the collapse of natural gas prices. But I also mentioned about China. And of course, that is the other really big story. Yes. Uh, since we've all been away for Christmas and then they quietly decided now was the time to reopen to the world after three yes. years essentially being in lockdown. How do you view the reopening affecting the, the global economic recovery narrative, as it were? So this is, as you say, a very major event. Uh, the Chinese economy is a very large economy and it's well integrated in the global economy. And this reopening is going to have uh, it's going to have major impacts on the global economy and therefore, of course, on the investors' asset allocations as well. I mean, what will it do? Well, first of all, uh, it will be good for Asia. A number of Asian countries are exporting and trading with China and more trade will boost economic activity across across the region. It would be good for countries such as Japan, but also for Europe. Uh, think uh, German car exports, for instance. Uh, uh, supply chain issues will tend to uh, dissipate because of this and so on. So it's going to be good for Japan. It's going to be good for Europe. It would probably uh, serve to push up commodity prices, etc. I mean, it's going to be good for countries such as for regions such as Latin America. So this is a really very major shift, I think, in the global economy. And, and it comes at a, good, uh, at a good time, I think, for the global economy. This will promote recovery across the across uh, vast regions of the, of the world economy. So this is plainly this is plainly good, uh, plainly a good thing. 
Yeah. So given all that you have said then in this interview, and I, I, I see there that you were talking about how the Chinese reopening, that ripple effect has become so important, right, for, for the global economy, especially the globalized world since 2000, 2008. Uh, how, how has asset allocation changed for you guys at EFG this year, given this, all the lessons from 2022 and, and so on and so forth? Well, I think for if it, I think for us, China is really big, big uh, driver of our of our allocations for twenty twenty three, and so we will be uh, we are overweighting uh, Asia, Japan, and Asia, Europe, uh, and also Latin America, and we have re reduced our equity allocation to the U.S. We're also a little bit worried in, in the U.S. that the economic activity may slow more. Than anticipate that that for that there is an upside risk to inflation. The Fed may have to tighten more, and so on. So, so uh, we're a little worried about the U.S., but uh, China is the big driver. It is uh, probably the most important driver for us this year, and that and that has that has a clear impact on our asset allocations. Got it. Um, within that, then. You know, what, what are some other themes that you think investors could most profit from this year? I know you mentioned China. If you're worried about the U.S., you know, there's, there's the U.S. dollar index, if you like, or the you know, these traditional safe havens. Do they come back into the, into the picture or are you full bull on the situation that's happening in China and you, you just look at it from that angle? Well, I think for us, I mean, the other thing that we talk a lot about and that we are sort of we are curious about is uh, the impact of the sort of evolution of inflation and central bank policy. How does that look? I mean, it looks now like um, inflation rates, I mean, normally we compute inflation looking at 12 months. And that's not such a good thing because we had, for instance, in the US, we had... Uh, we had spikes in inflation and across the world. We had spikes in inflation in March last year, the month after Russia invaded the Ukraine. And that March monthly inflation rate of last year is going to stay into our remain in our 12 month measure of inflation until March this year. Uh, so inflation, if you look at 12 month inflation rates, they are high, partially because of our developments last uh, uh, spring and last summer in, in June, for instance, in the US. So we tend to look uh, at inflation over the last three months or six months and so on and so forth. And these inflation rates have in many cases fallen precipitously. And uh, it is, we don't know how central banks will react to this, but it is possible that we will see a widespread, very rapid and widespread decline in inflation uh, this year. And that could, that could if, if stronger than anticipated, this could have an impact on monetary policy. Uh, and consequently, they would have an impact on long bond yields. Could have been, would then have impacts on 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 equity markets and, and so as well. So I think it pays to think through the inflation pictures, the picture this year uh, uh, for investors. This is one of the things that we are thinking very hard about how this may play itself out. And so, so that's the other I think big theme uh, for us: will inflation decline more rapidly? then it's generally appreciated now uh, or, or or not. We'll see. Yeah, no, absolutely we'll see. And you point to that, uh, you know, your, your, your concerns and hopefully a concern that'll that'll fade away soon in the in the second half of 2023. Um, I, I kind of wanted to leave just by, by asking one last question of you, Stefan, if I can. What do you think is, is one economic theme that you think investors may be not pricing in enough of, good or bad? So, 
as you remember, before COVID, we were all very worried about secular stagnation, this idea that inflation was sort of systematically very low, below, below targets, and central banks were not able to push it up to targets. We had very, very low interest rates. We're talking about neutral real interest rate being negative and, and so on. And that topic has just disappeared. And I think one reason it has disappeared is because we've seen ma massive fiscal expansion in a number of countries, much more government spending, boosting the demand uh, uh, for goods and services in the economy and consequently pushing equilibrium real interest rates up, up above zero. And this has led central banks to raise interest rates and so on. But for how long would government spending be this high? At some stage, governments are going to run into, uh, then they're going to, they're going to worry about deficits and, and so on. I mean, how long will this effect last? Is there a risk that, let's say, three or five years down the road, when this fiscal rapid expansion now uh, so will be curtailed or undone, what will the situation look like, like then? For instance, defense spending is increasing across the world right now. Is that a permanent increase or is that just something that's going to be, you're going to see for a couple of years and then they're going to start cutting back the defense spending? Uh, you know, the, I think one needs to, the, the battle against secular stagnation, I don't think is over and this could come back to haunt us. Stefan, it has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to chat. Thank you very much for giving us your time there from EFG Bank. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. Please do subscribe to our YouTube channel, both websites, livewiremarkets.com and marketindex.com.au. And if you are listening in on the podcast, please don't forget to catch regular episodes of The Rules of Investing with David Thornton. We'll see you next time.